What a delightful morning and an opportunity that is ours, having been vouchsafed to us by the God of heaven, with this glorious privilege that we have today to come together in the sunshine that God has fashioned and made, and to appreciate the opportunity to fellowship one with another, and more significantly to do so with the great God of heaven. It is interesting, isn't it, that we have been discussing for some weeks the nature of the Holy Spirit, and we have the opportunity today to continue that series of lessons and studies as we try strive to reach a closer appreciation of the truth as revealed in God's Word about the Holy Spirit. It's been a very fruitful study for myself, and I trust that it has been beneficial for each of us. We have come to this point in the study, having looked at two lessons, by way of review, we have looked at these from the following perspective. First, appreciative of the fact that it is our duty to pursue the truth as revealed in the Word of God on this subject, as well as in all others touched upon by the sacred scriptures. For man's opinion or his own thoughts do not produce truth. It is, however, the revelation of the Word of God that sets before us the wonderful truth on this particular subject. In that opening lesson, we came to understand the fact that the Holy Spirit is a divine person. Though there are some in our world who assert that the Holy Spirit is an influence, perhaps an emotion, likened not to anything other than a force, we saw that Jesus, the blessed Son of God, referred to him as a he, and on several occasions made reference to things that this person, divine in character, could carry out or experience. The Holy Spirit is a divine person, and as such, we should appreciate that he is one of the three involved in the very personality of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In the second lesson, we came to touch the subject of the Holy Spirit's work. We began to ask the question, with what sort of things does the Holy Spirit involve Himself? We noticed that in creation, both physical and spiritual, the Holy Spirit has a dramatic work. We came to see that in a number of passages. We also noted, though, near the close of that lesson, that one of the major activities of the Holy Spirit is to reveal the will of heaven to the human family. He did so in the Old Testament and how majestically and wonderfully he has done so in the New as well. And did we not notice the marvelous production from the hand of the Holy Spirit, the sacred scriptures themselves? 2 Peter 1 verses 20 and 21. Today as we begin to look more forward to the next element of our study, we'll ask one of the avenues or agencies by which the Holy Spirit carried out that work of revealing heaven's will. And so today's subject will be, what about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And what about the gift of the Holy Spirit as it's referenced in that text that Brother Eddie just read from Acts 2.38? Today, let's then wrestle with those ideas and see if the Holy Scriptures will not affirm for us what is the thrust and the significance and the meaning of all of those ideas. Perhaps we might close this introductory thought with 1 Corinthians 2.13, in which there the Holy Spirit wrote these salient words, which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. The Holy Ghost there, Paul said, teaches let us open the textbook that he wrote today 
and see if we can learn somewhat interestingly about not only the baptism of the Holy Ghost, but also the gift of the Holy Spirit. To do that, let's divide our lesson into two parts, and let's first look at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it significant that you and I no doubt are aware of the great controversy that surrounds the subject of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? There likely would be very few subjects that are more touted as controversial, filled with confusion, and fraught with controversy than would be this one. The questions surround almost every single facet of it. Who are the recipients of it? When was it received? Is it still necessary today for it to be received? Is it essential for salvation? There's a variety of opinions on all of those viewpoints. In fact, there are not a few individuals, even of our world today, who will very straightforwardly say that in order for a person to be saved, he or she must be baptized in the Holy Spirit. They will make that statement. We, of course, in the interest of our study, will find, is that a correct statement? Do the Scriptures, in fact, set forth that idea? As we look at the baptism of the Holy Spirit, might I ask us to be very methodical and rather systematic in our pursuit of that noble and holy subject this morning. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? As I've listed on that screen for your consideration, there are very, very few direct references to the baptism of the Holy Spirit in all of Scripture. In Joel 2, verses 28 to 32, we do have a statement in the Old Testament of a reference to a time when it would take place. Joel, in fact, is often known as the prophet of Pentecost, for he foretold verbatim and exactly the set of ideas that would take place on that marvelous Pentecost day, that first day of the week recorded in Acts 2. The observation of that set of events leaves us no doubt to the correctness of it, for Peter in verse 16 of Acts 2 said, This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Peter left us no question or ambiguity that what Joel prophesied was coming to pass that very day as detailed for us in the second chapter of that noble book of Acts. The understanding then of the unfolding of those events only leads us to wonder, what about any other New Testament references to the baptism or the overwhelming of the Holy Spirit? Might I direct your attention with me to Matthew 3 verse 11? we find from the very mouth of John the Baptist himself a reference to none other than the very baptism of the Holy Spirit. Early on in John's preaching ministry, we find that interesting statement wherein he said, that there is one coming after me whose shoes latched I'm not worthy to unloose. I have baptized with water. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Here was John verbatim making a relationship and a statement to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is significant that we notice John said it had not yet come to pass. He said, this one to whom I refer will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. It was something that from John's day was yet in the future. It had not occurred at that time. Later on in Acts chapter 1 verse 5, this time the very words of Jesus himself, this was following Jesus' crucifixion. It was after his resurrection, but it was prior to his ascension to glory. 
during that period of some 40 days, on one occasion he made this affirmation to the apostles. He again, referring to John, said, John baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Here was the very Son of God himself making a direct and unequivocal statement to those apostles, you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days hence. There's a great deal of volume to be appreciated in that statement, isn't there? In fact, we find here from Jesus himself, and who other than the Son of God would know the clarity and purity and timescale of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And Jesus said, from that perspective, not many days will pass until they would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. The understanding of that perspective very quickly then leads us to ask, as we start reading from Acts 1 verse 5, when do we encounter then the fulfillment of that which the Lord declared? There's a couple of notes that we should make in passing. Throughout the reading of Acts chapter 1, there is a reference that you might notice in verses 15 and 16. A reference to 120 disciples that were gathered in that upper room on that occasion. On the, as one makes note especially of that verse 15. As thus Jesus made that promise with respect to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, who was it that would receive that promise? Was it all the 120 disciples? Was it only the apostles? Was it all of humanity? We have arrived at a passage that very clearly specifies the answer to that question. Notice in verses 1 and following, I'd like to call your attention especially to verse number 2. Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. And in the verses that follow, we have the record of the Lord's discussion with those apostles, the very same ones described. And it was to them in verse 5 that he said, You will be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Already we seem to be seeing that this reference to the baptism of the Holy Spirit was not for all humanity. In fact, it wasn't even for all the disciples. It was especially given by the Lord to the apostles in Acts 1 verse number 5. If we need any further consideration of that point, let us look further in the chapter. We notice the record of Judas committing suicide and we also remember that Matthias was appointed as a replacement to bring the holy number of those apostles back to twelve. And the closing verse of Acts 1 reads as follows. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. The very last word of Acts chapter 1 is the word apostles. And as we've noted so frequently in our study of the sacred text, on occasions thereafter, when a pronoun is employed, it is identified by the closest preceding noun that has the proper characteristics. As we thus turn to Acts 2, verse number 1, let's now notice the statement that is therein made. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. Who's the they refer to? The apostles. That's the last noun that appeared that is descriptive of and that identifies who it was that's under discussion. And so in verse number 2, 
And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Who's the they? The apostles. Notice verse 3. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. Who's the them? The apostles. Same noun that we have already appreciated. Verse number 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Jesus had stated not many days prior that it would not be many days until you, apostles, shall be baptized in the Holy Ghost. And we have now appreciated the overwhelming flood that those apostles experienced. And they began in their fulfillment, being filled with that Holy Spirit, to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. As we can see, the apostles being filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 14 and following, Peter and the eleven stood up and began to speak to that large crowd gathered on that Pentecost day. The nature of the Holy Spirit's baptism of them gave them the power to speak clearly, to speak correctly, to speak inerrantly, and to speak accurately. Heaven's will with regard to the Christian ministration, the gospel plan of salvation, and the revelation of this new Christian regime. Sure enough, as Peter and the eleven preached on that noble day, we find the sermon concluded. And the amazing thing of verses 36 and following, wherein about 3,000 gladly received the word and were baptized, verse 41, and the verse closes, the chapter does, in verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. This opening reference to then the baptism of the Holy Spirit has seen in a very limited case that this was for the apostles and it was for the purpose of enabling them to proclaim in the proper and correct fashion the glorious correctness and wonder of heaven's will. At that point, we might ask, are there other references in the Holy Scriptures to the baptism of the Holy Spirit? The thing is, we can find one other text that identifies it. And might I ask us to notice, it thus is only referenced two times in all of the New Testament. There was this one of which we have just given emphasis. The other is found some eight chapters later. In the tenth chapter of the book of Acts, we there encounter a in an enthralling scene in which Cornelius, being directed by the very nature of heaven itself, had sent to bring Peter. And when Peter came, Peter too had been foretold and had been in fact encouraged by the Holy Spirit. And when he came, he preached to those Gentiles therein gathered. And as he preached and proclaimed to them, something interesting is seen in the closing verses to chapter 10. Might I direct your attention to verse 44 and following. Acts chapter 10, verse 44. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost." we see another expression that seems to relate rather intricately to what we had seen in the second chapter. To highlight it even further, notice Peter's reference to these same events one chapter later. In Acts 11, verse number 15, Peter made this statement. 
And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. Peter used the word us. The Holy Spirit fell on those Gentiles in the same way that it did us. And we've already learned the us was the apostles back on the occasion of Acts chapter 2. There was a sense in which then the household of Cornelius also came to experience a type of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the 10th chapter of Acts. With regard to that baptism, in all points it wasn't like as, as it had been for the apostles, but a measure of it was apparent. Those Gentiles were not thus of a position as the apostles had been to say preach in an infallible fashion from then onward. But it was clearly a sign from the God above that these had been accepted as candidates and as recipients of the gospel just as the Jews had been back in the second chapter of Acts. These are thus the only two occurrences in all of the Bible to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's it. To conclude that particular discussion, would it not be entirely fair then to say, who is it that administered this baptism of the Holy Spirit? Let's be very certain that we see that answer. John had stated in Matthew 3.11 in regard to the fact that he had baptized with water, but there was coming one after him whose shoes he wasn't worthy to unloose. He will baptize in the Holy Ghost. That he clearly refers to the Savior, Jesus himself. May we thus never forget that Jesus is the administrator of Holy Spirit baptism. No preacher on earth, no matter how noble or scholarly or learned he may be, can possibly baptize with the Holy Spirit. Only the Lord could do that. Furthermore, might we notice in John 1.33, even there as the statement was made of the Lord's baptism, the Holy Ghost dwelt upon him, for there John made reference to the same and remained with him. And he is the one, John was told, would baptize in the Holy Spirit. Those myriads of individuals today who thus think that they must be baptized with the Holy Spirit or that one can't be saved without it are sorely mistaken. It was in fact given only to the apostles and only to those specific Gentiles in the 10th chapter of Acts. Later Paul would say in Ephesians 4 verse 5 that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. If there is but one baptism... And we understand that baptism as taught by the Savior involves water, John 3 verse 5. Then certainly we should appreciate that this baptism of the Holy Spirit is not still active today. It is not necessary for you or for me to be baptized in the Holy Spirit in order to be saved. That was not the purpose for which it was given. In fact, perhaps we might notice a distinction in terms there are many verses that make reference to being filled with the Holy Spirit. That is not the same as being baptized in the Holy Spirit. I list some thoughts that I hope would make that abundantly clear for each of us to appreciate. It was said, in fact, that John the Baptist, as well as both of his parents, were filled with the Holy Spirit. But were any of them ever baptized with the Holy Ghost? Not a single reference to that event occurs. And from what we have seen, obviously it didn't because John died. He was beheaded before the Holy Ghost and the events of Pentecost ever took place. Thus, there is a world of difference between being filled with the Holy Spirit 
and being baptized in the Holy Spirit. May we thus understand that this baptism of the Holy Spirit is not for you and me today. It cannot take place for us. It was given, as I've tried to synthesize during the close of that screen, it was given to the apostles and to those, mentioned in Acts chapter 10, to those apostles so that they would infallibly and inerrantly specify God's truth in Revelation to those Gentiles as a sign that God had accepted them into the Christian era and as subjects of being saved under the law of Christ. That baptism of the Holy Spirit perhaps only leads us to understand and to guess. As we look into the Bible, what does the Scripture say about the gift of the Holy Ghost? The gift of the Holy Spirit. May we use the latter part of our lesson time this morning to think also about that subject and about that idea. The gift of the Holy Spirit. Just as was the case concerning the baptism of the Holy Spirit, many questions surround the question of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Questions, in fact, that could be used to extend the lesson time lengthily today. In fact, speaking to almost any person with a knowledge of denominationalism, you'll find a variety of answers with respect to the gift of the Holy Spirit. In that text that was read earlier from Acts, the second chapter, there when Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What is that gift? Many particular answers have been given to that question. Is it salvation? Is it some miraculous measure of the working of the Holy Spirit? Is it an ordinary measure of the working of the Holy Spirit? Is it something else that in fact is the literal indwelling of the Holy Spirit within a Christian? All of those answers one will hear, at least in discussion with various people. Could we ask, what does the Bible help us to see about that gift? And what might we appreciate about its usefulness in our lives today? There are many who will take that idea and use it to teach, for instance, the necessity of speaking in tongues, claiming that I'm not saved if I, by virtue of the indwelling Spirit and the gift which He provides, am able to speak in tongues. In fact, the unity movement, the Pentecostal movement, other rather notable movements all reason in that fashion. Might I ask for us to consider what is the gift of the Holy Spirit? First of all, perhaps an illustration might be in order. If I were to visit the home of one of the families or one of the individuals here in the congregation, and perhaps in the observation of that visit were to notice a very lovely portrait upon the wall, and in the discussion of that portrait you begin to tell me about the nature of the fact that it's a painting of perhaps the boyhood days when you were a lad and that, that was the farm that you grew up on. And I comment how lovely the picture is and how almost lifelike it seems. And you say that my uncle gave me that as a gift. It was a gift of my uncle. At that point, what might we conclude? Is the picture your uncle? There are some who say that the gift of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit itself. Does that necessarily follow? Is the gift that the Holy Spirit is able to give one and the same as the Holy Spirit itself? Well, clearly the picture is not your uncle. It is a gift that your uncle gave. 
And in the same way, we should not be too quick to merely conclude that just because it's the gift of the Holy Spirit, that it is the Holy Spirit itself. In fact, I believe in a few moments we will have reached the conclusion it is not the Holy Spirit himself. But to look even further than, than an illustration, the verbatim statement of the gift of the Holy Ghost, or as the American Standard renders it, the gift of the Holy Spirit, that phrase occurs only two times in all the New Testament. One of them is in the text that you and I just read, Acts 2.38. The only other occasion, and I might submit it would be helpful for us to consider it, for it may shed tremendous light on the usefulness and the meaning of this first occurrence. The only other occurrence is in the 10th chapter of Acts. In Acts 10, verse number 45, the very last few words of that verse literally is the gift of the Holy Ghost. And in the Greek, it's the same presentation as in Acts 2.38. If we, by some means, could appreciate the thrust of this text, it may help us gr uh, greatly understand the one not many chapters before in Acts chapter 2. What is this gift of the Holy Spirit? In Acts chapter 10, it is identified clearly as a miraculous thing in which those Gentiles therein gathered were given the capability of speaking in these languages that they had never learned to speak in these various dialects or speeches that they formerly had not studied and had not physically mastered. And so it is that with that miraculous thrust of this one, is it perhaps not the case that the thrust in Acts 2.38 is similarly a miraculous one? dictated to those of that day and time wherein by the imposition of the hands of an apostle they would have the capability of through the power of the Holy Spirit working various miracles or other extraordinary things that are certainly no longer possible. I would submit that that seems to exactly be what's under description. That namely as Peter promised the baptism and the repentance things to be followed by that gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 verse 38. He was in essence saying that then by the laying on of the hands of an apostle, in addition to the salvation that you already have experienced, you will have the capability of these gifts of the Holy Spirit which will enable you to perform healings or to perform one of the other things described in 1 Corinthians 12. There are nine particular gifts of the Holy Spirit mentioned on that occasion. Might I ask you to notice the listing there with me? 1 Corinthians 12. And we'll begin reading in verse number 7. 1 Corinthians 12, verse number 7. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom... To another, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, divers kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and the selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. We noticed here that Paul made reference to various gifts of the Holy Spirit that were alive and active and well among the congregation in Corinth. 
including healing, interpretations, tongues, faith, prophecy, we will know that in the very next chapter, Paul clearly taught that these things were of a limited duration. They passed away once the Word had been confirmed and once its per perfectness had been established. With that kind of idea, can we not see that that gift of the Holy Spirit thus promised in Acts 2.38 was a miraculous measure before the days that the written Word had been confirmed and that it was passed on by the imposition of the hands of an apostle. That degree of imposition and that aspect of that gift is perhaps all too well highlighted for us in the 8th chapter of Acts. Might I turn your attention briefly as we come near the close of our lesson this morning to that interesting set of events in the 8th chapter of Acts. Philip was a preacher of the truth, and as he came to the area of Samaria... He proclaimed, and they responded with greatness. Verse 12 affirms that when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, they were baptized, both men and women. In light of what the Lord had taught, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. These individuals were Christians. In their belief, they had responded in faith, and thus had been baptized. They were Christians. But notice in that same chapter, a very unusual statement is made. In fact, we notice in verse 16 it says, For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, the he referring to the Holy Spirit. Here were individuals who were Christians. They had been baptized into Christ. Their sins had been washed away, but the text says they had not received the Holy Spirit. Clearly, this is no degree of the measure of the Holy Spirit that accompanies salvation, for they were saved. We notice that what they were lacking, as the verses go on to say, verse 17 says, Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. These whom Philip had baptized, and these whom he had taught, they were in that position where Philip was not an apostle. However, the church in Jerusalem sent Peter and John to this Samaritan area. Peter and John thus laid their hands on them, conferring the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now we see what kind of Holy Spirit they were receiving. It was this miraculous measure that enabled them to, in fact, carry out not unlike the things of 1 Corinthians 12. But they were provided by the imposition of the hands of Peter and John. That gift of the Holy Spirit is thus a gift which you and I can well understand helps to satisfy our mind mightily today. Do you and I thus need to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit as they did in order to be saved? Many so claim today, but again they are in error. These miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, once the Word had been confirmed, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 13, these things passed away, ceasing to exist. Today, there isn't anyone who can receive a miraculous measure of knowledge without studying it. There isn't anyone that can work healing or prophecy or those other things that were therein mentioned. All that's made available to us is the character of a study of this Word and that measure of the Holy Spirit that accompanies the normal degree of salvation. Now, that will be, in fact, a part of the continuing aspects of our study. In fact, one of the last things I ask you to notice is that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit 
is then a subject that still stands before us to be studied, and we look forward to the opportunity of discussing that very idea. As we draw near the close of our lesson this morning, would it not be fair to summarize some of these thoughts in words like this? We looked at the baptism of the Holy Spirit, recorded twice, learned very clearly that it is not applicable, nor does it occur for us today, but it was reserved for those apostles and that special measure of the household of Cornelius. But then with regard to the gift of the Holy Spirit, it was limited in time to that first century era when the Word had not yet been completed. And that miraculous exposition of gifts was thus a great confirmation of the Holy Scriptures. And in that confirmation, it was able to set forth heaven's will and the revelation so that men and women could appreciate the divine nature of it and respond in faith to it. There's no need then for confusion about the baptism of the Holy Spirit or for these miraculous gifts of it. Those were for a day long since gone by. As we thus appreciate or listen to the false teaching that some may have to say about that, may we understand God's truth does not uphold those false ideas, and we can nonetheless see that the Holy Spirit is active and alive and well by virtue of the Word He's revealed. And as that Word permeates our life and leads us to salvation, we will have opportunity to see the indwelling character of the Spirit as we further consider our series of studies. Today, have you been led by the Holy Spirit to appreciate Jesus as a Son of God? To, in fact, become a member of that blood-bought body, which is the church, and to understand the salvation afforded to those that are members thereof. If today you haven't done that, realize the Lord is calling. He, in fact, beckons so earnestly, and He wants you to respond for... Apart from the gospel, there is no salvation for you. You need to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You need to repent of your sins, to confess His matchless name as the Son of God, and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. If you've done that but have wandered away from your first love, come back to that first love. We'd be more than honored to pray on your behalf. If we could be of assistance in either of these fashions and ways today, we would urge you to hastily let, 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 let that be known in a public way so that we could take the proper measures to aid you in your confession and baptism, if the case may be, or to pray on your behalf. If we could help you in either of those ways, would you not let that be known even now while together we stand and while we sing?